Turn there with me, if you would, please. Philippians chapter 2. We'll read verses uh, 1 through 4, actually. I have verse 2 up there, but we'll read verses 1 through 4 for the text this morning. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning, thanking you for your mercy, for your goodness, for this grace that is unmerited, the goodness that's been bestowed upon us through your provision for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for these who hunger word, those who, according to it, we are grateful and we rejoice in knowing this truth. We thank you, Father, for provision for us in salvation, but also this work of sanctification that you are continuing in our hearts, and we pray, Father, that we might be submissive in your hand as the clay is in the hand of the potter. Lord, we pray you would continue this work, and in doing so, that we would and acknowledge that it is your hand that is at work in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ, and that we understand and live intentionally and purposefully unto your glory and honor through submission to your Spirit, using your Word in and through us. Thank you again for the exhortation that we are given in the Word of God, for the comfort. We thank you for the provision and the revelation of that is Jesus Christ. Now we have eyes that are open to see and ears that are open to hear and hearts that are are open to receive your word this day. And may we have discernment of your spirit to understand and as well the boldness and commitment in submitting unto you, Lord, to live in the truth that is before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you and be seated. As I have explained over the past few weeks, the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippian believers contains what is known as Paul's hymn, or also referred to as the Carmen Christi. This hymn is found in verses 5 through 11. I want to go ahead and read verses 5 through 9 with you now, but we, we see it follows through through verse 11. Verse 5 begins, which is the next verse from our reading this morning. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now, we know that this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 11, verses 10 and 11 go on to explain how that God has exalted him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. And so this hymn to Christ, or hymn of Christ, as it's referred to, uh, also, as I mentioned, the Carmen Christi, it is foundational and central to the entirety of that which Paul is teaching within this chapter. Now, we understand that the previous chapter, of course, uh, sets the tone for the entire epistle. We know that in chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says that ye may approve things that are excellent, 
that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And so here Paul is speaking of that which is excellent or that which is superior. And so one of the themes throughout this entire epistle is that this is the thesis statement here in verse, chapter 1, verse 10, that Paul is saying that you may approve, that you may understand, acknowledge, and then live thereby uh, unto those things which are superior. And then Paul gives us example after example of that which is superior. As a matter of fact, we really what Paul is saying is that we are to be as Christ, his mind being in us, who are believers in Christ, and therefore we are to sacrifice ourselves, serving one another as unto the Lord. We'll look into that more so in a few moments. But the reality is Paul is saying this is more excellent, superior, known in the text. So Paul is listing for us these things that are superior, and we find that most explicitly stated in chapter 3 where Paul goes on to say that that I may know him, of course, chapter 2 and chapter 3. But Paul says that I may know him uh, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul also goes on to say that he counted all things but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. Not only in salvation, again, but knowing him in salvation, in sanctification, in justification, in righteousness. And holiness, knowing all there is to know about Jesus, this provision God has made for us in the person of His Son. And so verses 9 specifically are central to what Paul is saying. The verses that are to follow. A couple of weeks ago, we began our study of this chapter, which leads us into Paul's hymn of Christ by observing the basis of the exhortation to intentionally intentionally to the mind of Christ at verse 5. In verse 1, Paul says of this chapter, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now again, this word if is a conditional conjunction, and Paul is stating that that is, then this should be, this is the result or should be the result. And so if you've received this, not in a hypothetical sense, but on the condition of or on the basis of, so on the basis of receiving uh, these truths, he says, we are to have the mind of Christ. So he's actually stating that it, this, this exhortation is given on the basis that the reader had received first, consolation in Christ. Second, the comfort of God's love. Third, fellowship through God's spirit. And then fourth, godly affection and compassion. Being recipients of this. Last week we discovered that Paul further exhorted the church to be like-minded. Verse 2 is where we... Feel ye my joy, Paul said, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And just to just review this for just a moment, what we looked at last week, Paul's joy, as we was rooted in Jesus Christ and in his truth. This joy was magnified, however, when those in whom Paul had invested the truth of Christ responded in submission to the Lord and his truth. John expressed Abundance of joy we saw last week regarding those who lived in the truth of Christ in which he had instructed them. In 2 John, verse 4, John wrote to the lady and her children and said, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. To Gaius, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And 
But Paul is saying much of the same thing here. He says, fulfill ye, complete my joy. Not that Paul's joy was dependent upon the church at Philippi. But he's saying, magnify the joy that I have in Christ by following after Christ. And when I see you walk in truth, it brings joy to my heart. It brings joy to my life to see you walk in the truth of Christ. We discussed well last week, there's a common thread which ties together multiple passages of Scripture in which the exhortation to be like-minded or the same mind is given. So we read where Paul says, be like-minded, and, well, Paul's just saying that we need to agree. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's not saying you need to agree on, on matters of theology, though that is of the utmost importance. He's not saying you need to agree on, on religion or denomination. He's not saying that. When he says, be like-minded, there is a context in which this statement is given or this exhortation is given. And we see the common thread. Romans 12, 16 says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your three. I therefore prison of the Lord. Beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here he says, of course, walk worthy, and meekness, forbearing one another in love. Romans 15, 5, 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that or so that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. So once again, as we consider what is at the core of Paul's exhortation, as indicated in verse 5 of chapter 2, this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, this is a call for believers to live in the humility and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, which Paul emphasized in verses 6 through 8 of the second chapter when he says, who, Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became to death the death of the cross. Last week, I concluded by stating that the wisdom, the genius, and the beauty of Paul's exhortation in this passage of Scripture we view ourselves and others according to this charge and as Christ exemplified in his and there will be no lack within the body of Christ. Paul is saying be like-minded in having the mind of Christ as you have the mind of Christ and therefore we our life should be as his. Furthermore, to live intentionally having the same mind concerning oneself and others as our Lord exemplified, will result in us having the same love, Paul goes on to say, agape, that's word agape there, God's love, being of one means unity of the Spirit, of one mind meaning living with the same purpose or in the same purpose. So we understand that this common thread is that to be like-minded throughout Scripture or holiness and such and, and so on and so forth, when those words are mentioned, they are in relation to consistently with how we view ourselves 
and therefore how we view one another, specifically as believers, other believers in Jesus Christ. And so this like-mindedness of which Paul speaks in this context is that we have the mind of Christ specifically in relation to viewing ourselves and how we view others, how we should view ourselves and how we are to view others. Last week, we saw again that this is central to Paul's exhortation of letting this mind be in you. So within the following two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul further exhorts the church on He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And once again, we are reminded within these verses, well, at the root of Paul's to Christ as we discover in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. These verses literally spell out what it looks like within our lives when we live with the mind of Christ. For to live with the mind of Christ is for one's life to then look like the life of Christ. Paul explains, let nothing be done. Now Paul's charge in this verse is more direct than it may first appear to be. There is nothing passive about this statement, but rather, Paul is saying to the reader, do nothing in the following manner or with the following motives. So when he says, let nothing be done, it almost we would read that as a passive statement, but it's not. Paul is saying, do not do anything with this motive or in this attitude or this spirit or this manner. So this is a charge, this is an exhortation. He's actually giving, Paul is actually giving a a rather emphatic charge to the reader. And it's important that we understand what Paul commands the reader. So he says, let nothing be done. Do nothing, he says, first, through strife. Now the noun strife means self-ambition. or It's also translated contention or contentious. Another meaning of this word. So in other words, Paul is saying... Do not do anything out of contention or out of self-ambition or self-gain, out of selfish reason or selfish motive. But then he goes on to say, do nothing through vainglory. And the noun vainglory means empty conceit. And there are at least two truths made within this statement which we must consider. There are two implications by this statement, empty conceit or vainglory. First of all, Paul notes that we are to do all things intentionally and purposefully. In Romans, Paul wrote specifically in relation uh, in how we are to interact with others. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 16, we read, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to this necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. So here Paul says we are to do everything intentionally and purposefully, being kindly affectioned, in honor preferring one another, not being sloppy or lazy or passive, 
fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now notice the connection here. Paul is saying, as we are kindly affection one to another, as we prefer others above ourselves and before ourselves, what are we really doing? We are serving the Lord. This is a manner in which God is being served through our lives. So he worship through our lives. And then he goes on to explain that we are not to mind high things. We are to have the same mind and condescend to men of low estate. We are not to exalt ourselves. We are to be merciful and we are to be gracious and we are to weep with those who weep. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice in service and worship unto God. Then second, the second implication is Paul says not only that we are to do all things intentionally and purposefully, and that's one thing. And there are a lot of people who are very intentional in their lives or very purposeful in their lives, but without the second implication being a reality, then it all really amounts to nothing. And that is number two, that we are to do all things as unto the Lord. In Colossians, Paul wrote to those who were slaves to serve their masters as serving the Lord. Because even to others is to be unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul wrote. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Here again, uh, in Colossians, Paul is making it clear that our service is not even unto men, but it's unto the Lord. So therefore, in all things, whatever it is that we are doing, we are to be intentional and purposeful, not only with an intention and purpose in what we do, but we are to be intentionally and purposefully living unto the Lord. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. And it's interesting that over and over again, in Scripture, we are told that to be like-minded or to have the same mind, it's, it's related to or connected to how we view ourselves and how we view others. In other words, it would be easy for someone to say they have the mind of Christ. It's easy for someone to profess that they love truth. It's easy for someone to profess that they love the Lord. But again, as John, in one of the tests, the very test of love or love test that he gives in his first epistle, John makes it clear when he makes a statement or asks the question, how can you claim or how can you truly love God whom you don't see when you don't display or demonstrate genuine love for those brothers, those who are of God, whom you do see? He, and, and Jesus said again, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one to another. Jesus told his disciples, I give a new commandment unto you. The old commandment was that you love your neighbor as yourself. He said, but I give a new commandment unto you. And what was that new commandment? That ye love one another even as I have loved you. And again, that's an impossibility for us to do apart from Christ doing that in us. If we do not possess the mind of Christ, then we will never love others as Jesus loves them because we cannot duplicate or replicate or manufacture such a love. This must be the love of Christ from his mind flowing through us, not our attempt to live like Jesus. And so we have to recognize that it again comes to this matter of submitting unto him, that his love, that his mind be demonstrated through us. And here's what Paul is saying. If we have the mind of Christ, when we have the mind of Christ, then it's going to be demonstrated in and through our lives in such a manner that there is going to be this love of Jesus that is present in us towards other brothers and sisters in Christ who also have received of that same love. And so again, you know, they say talk is cheap, and it's one thing to make all these claims of, and statements concerning how much we love the Lord, how much we love our church, how much we love this and that and the other, how much we love someone, but yet the reality is if we are preferring ourselves before them, 
then that is not at all the love of Christ being demonstrated through us. And that's what Paul is laying out here very clearly in this exhortation. So we are to do all things intentionally and purposefully, but all things are to be done unto the Lord intentionally and purposefully. But it's interesting what Paul then does. Notice what he does next. He contrasts what the Philippian church was not to do, and we see that. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done. Do nothing through strife, through self-ambition or contention. Do nothing through vainglory, through empty conceit. But then he contrasts it with to do in the latter part of verse 3 and Look what Paul stated. But, here's a contrasting conjunction, but instead of doing this, do this. In lowliness of mind. Now the lowliness of mind is translated from one Greek word, which means humility. So lowliness of mind literally means humility. And if we were to fast forward a bit to Paul's hymn to Christ in verse 5, we find again, 6, 7, 8, 9, we find in that passage... The, at the, that humility is at the very foundation of Paul's testimonial record of the life purpose uh, for taking on flesh and that which our Lord Jesus accomplished through his physical life and death. Look at verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here, humility is at the very core of this entire exhortation. Again, see, this is what we have to understand. We, we like to get the cart before the horse so often. We really do. So, oh, we need to prefer others above ourselves. Well, here's how we often would view that. Okay, well, I just need to think of them more than I think of myself. No, we need to humble ourselves is the issue. See, it's not about attempting to do something. About viewing ourselves in the manner we should view ourselves. And if Christ who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he is the very son of God, the very personification of God in the flesh. And yet, he humbled himself. Now think about this for a moment. It is not just that Jesus thought more of us than he did of himself. Of course not. It is that he humbled himself, lowering himself, to come into the form of flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but the very likeness of sinful flesh. So he humbled himself, even becoming lower than the angels. Are you understanding? It's not that we think, oh, God had some or lofty thought of us in that respect. No, Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and the Father had purposefully uh, intended and, and was intent to redeem us through his provision of his Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus wanted, obviously, was committed to the purpose and will of the Father. And in order for that purpose and will to be fulfilled in his life, it required that he humbled himself. Not just that he exalted his thoughts of us, but that he humbled himself. See, we don't have a problem thinking much of others necessarily, but I'll tell you where we do have a problem, in humbling ourselves. Because it's not that we, we can't think, oh, well, we really respect this person, we think highly of them, but the real question is, how do we view ourselves? Here's the reality of it. This is how we must view ourselves. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ and am crucified. I have nothing of which I can boast. 
And yes, the Scriptures do refer to us as that of a worm, if you will, as that of, of, uh, of the creation of man that is, or creation of God that has fallen to sin after manful, or man's sinful desires. And so we understand that we truly are nothing in and of ourselves, but our identity in Christ is everything. And so we are to view ourselves in this light. Does that mean I walk around with my chin dragging the ground all the time? Of course not. But here's why. It's not because of who I am or what I am. It's because who I've been made to be in Christ. I have a future. I have a hope. I have a confidence. Not in myself or in my performance or my efforts, but in the truth that I am in Christ and He is in me. Christ is my joy, Christ is my hope, Christ is my righteousness. I have none of this of my own or, or in myself apart from Christ. So He is my life. So it's not that we walk around berating ourselves all the time. That is not humility, nor is it piety. But rather it's that we recognize apart from Jesus, not only can we can do nothing apart from Him, but we are nothing apart from Him. All this is temporal, all this is, is temporary. But yet it is Christ who is the anchor of our soul. It is Christ who is our rock. It is Christ who is our hope. It is Christ who is our salvation. It is Christ who is our righteousness. It is Christ who is our redemption. It is Christ who is our sanctification. So lowliness of mind is that of humility. And apart from Jesus' commitment to the eternal purpose of the Heavenly Father, Jesus had no more intrinsic need to demonstrate humility than you and I have the inherent or natural right to possess or manifest pride. Are you understanding what, do you understand what I just said? Apart from our Lord's commitment to fulfill the eternal redemptive purpose of God the Father, there was no intrinsic, no necessary need for Jesus to demonstrate humility. He is God in the flesh, but he humbled himself. And Jesus no more needed or had the need to humble himself apart from God's eternal redemptive purpose than you or I have the inherent right to out. Jesus humbled himself to not only take on flesh, but also to suffer in the flesh and embrace the cruelest of deaths upon the cross. Not only is this humility realizing the physical cruelty of the cross, but more importantly, the cross also possessed a spiritual and physical shame. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what he's saying is that, that Christ became a curse for us. He was judged as though he were the sinner by God. God's wrath was poured out upon his Son on my behalf. And again, I say to you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a wonderful truth of which you should never forget. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God has been exhausted on your behalf upon His Son. There is no more wrath. Again, I don't fear God in the sense of I shake in thinking of, of, 
standing before him. I reverence him. I respect him as my heavenly father. But there is no wrath reserved for me. And that is a wonderful truth. Look, this is my confidence. Again, I'm not hoping one day I'll do good enough that God will just kind of say, well, you did your best. No, my confidence is that God the Father exhausted every single bit of wrath that would have been mine upon his son. Now, for the unbeliever, the opposite is true. In Romans 2.5, Paul states that God is being treasured up, waiting to be poured out upon the day of judgment. And so the reality is the wrath of God is still being treasured up as I've mentioned many times, I think a good example of what Paul is saying in Romans 2.5 is that it's, it's as though the clouds that form in the sky and they continue to get darker and darker and darker and gather more moisture and more moisture until eventually, as we would say it here in the south, the bottom falls out. And down pours the rain. So it is God's wrath is being stored up gathering more and more and more and more upon those who are unrepentant, unregenerate. And one day, apart from Jesus Christ, that wrath will just fall out upon them for all eternity. But for those who are in Jesus Christ, God's exhausted every bit of His wrath upon His Son. Paul explained this when he says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin. It doesn't mean Jesus was sin literally. No, he was the atonement for sin, and he was judged as though he were the sinner that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the humility of Jesus is seen that in that he willingly took the shame, suffering the cross, bearing upon himself our sin. Paul goes on to say, though, not only that we are to in lowliness of mind, but let each esteem other better than themselves. So this is an interesting charge when we consider Paul's further exhortation in verse 5, to let this mind be in you. Again, in Romans 12.10, Paul referenced such behavior when he said, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Preferring one another means to esteem more highly. For one to prefer another means that they again first must humble themselves or himself. Such a demonstration of humility can only be a reality through the love of Christ. Jesus commanded disciples, as I referenced a moment ago in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. This love is obviously a selfless and unconditional love. And we can only love like this when we love and live according to the mind of Christ. So it's on this basis of selfless love of Christ that Paul further commanded the Philippian church in verse 4. Look with me. So he said, Do not do anything through strife. Do not do anything through vainglory, through empty conceit, self-ambition. But he says, Rather, but in lowliness of mind, in Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, this is a command for the Philippian church to not live according to their own interests, but to consider the interests of others. In other words, Paul is instructing the Philippian believers to not live unto themselves, but to live as Christ did with his mind to edify one another. Paul explained this truth in detail in his epistle of Romans. Romans 15, 1-3, he said, listen to what he says. This is very interesting. 
We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you hear what he just said? Oh, so even if there's a weaker brother or sister, we are not to be living in, as, in a manner as to please ourselves, but rather to bear their infirmities or even their weakness. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Interesting that Paul brings edification in the matter, is it not? And then verse 3, notice the contrast. For even Christ pleased not himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even Christ pleased not himself. Do not live to please yourselves. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. So Christ did not please himself, but he bore our reproach. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of this very truth, Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came in perfect submission to the will of the Father, humbling himself when he didn't have to, apart from submitting to the Father's will, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. But not only that, dying the most shameful and the greatest of death upon the cross. When he did not deserve to, and yet he humbled himself. He pleased not himself, yet bore our reproach. It is imperative that we consider others as part of the body of Jesus Christ. We are not to live unto ourselves, nor are we to live for ourselves, but we are to live in service to one another as we edify one another by the Spirit working and ministering through each of us. Again, listen, this is not about, well, when you see your neighbor, you see your, somebody in the church needs something, we just run out and get it done because it's our responsibility. No, that is true. That's not the point here. It's humbling ourselves, preferring others before ourselves because we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, we are intentional and purposeful in humbling ourselves, serving others as unto the Lord. This is not just about being part of a club that meets everybody's need. This is not about being part of a society or a community. Everybody focuses so much on community today and that term community. And I'm not saying there's not importance in community, if you will, but apart from understanding the unity of the Spirit then you have no real biblical community. So it's the unity of the Spirit that binds us together, that makes us one in Jesus, and therefore it is because of the Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, which dwells within us, giving us the mind of Christ that we would serve and prefer others above ourselves, as did our Lord. This is truly what Christ did, is it not? He lived and died selflessly that He might redeem us as it so pleased His Heavenly Father. And we are to live selflessly, caring for one another, yet we are to do so living our lives not as though we are serving men, but serving Christ. We are to intentionally live selflessly in service to one another as we commit ourselves in worship through submission to our Heavenly Father. 
When Paul says to be like-minded, having the same mind, the same when he says act in this manner or this spirit of self-ambition and empty conceit, but rather we are to act in, in humility, esteeming others, preferring one another above ourselves. Why? Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Here is the demonstration of what this looks like in one's life when they are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this a week or so ago in our study through Jude on Wednesday evening, but I'll say it again, that there is a statement that's attributed to D.L. Moody, though it was actually historically part of a conversation that was had between he and a British revivalist at the time. But the statement that was made was Moody had made the statement or, or, or rehearsed what had been stated when he said, the world has yet to see One man who is totally submitted to God. And he goes on to say, by the grace of God, I aim to be that man. But I would beg to differ. The world has seen what it looks like for one man to be totally submitted to God the Father. And you know what that looks like? The Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the reality of it. If we have his mind, then our lives will reflect such a life as his. Because it's he who is living in and through us. If we truly are submitted to the Lord and his mind is in us, we have his mind, then his love is, will also be in us flowing to others. If we have his mind, then the desire to submit to the Heavenly Father will as well be present within us. Are you seeing this? You cannot separate these things. To have his mind, to have his spirit, is to have his life. And to have his life means that the attributes of his life, the characteristics of his life, will be demonstrated as well through this life which we live. Will our lives totally look like that of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, no, they won't. Not totally. You know why? Because there's still sin in this flesh in which we live. But I will say this. If one has the mind of Christ, then the life and love and submission of Christ will be absolutely reflected within that life and through that life. Be like-minded, having the same mind, same spirit, living in the same purpose. Do not live in the manner or spirit of self-ambition and empty conceit, but rather in humility, preferring one another. The real question is this. It's not how do we view others. And I'm afraid that's where we like to put the focus that I mentioned earlier. The real question is this. How do we see ourselves? How do we actually see ourselves. 